Connecticut and Massachusetts, Z&M Homes buys houses. Sell your property to the local guys. Needs repairs, updates, maybe foreclosure or inherited? No problem. We gotcha. Google or add us on Facebook at Z-A-N-D-M-Homes.com. It's Baxi's Musical Podcast. A few months ago, I interviewed singer Deborah Ayal from the 80s new wave band Romeo Void. At the time, Liberation Hall Records had just released a previously unheard performance of a show that they did in November of 1980 at the famous Mabuhay Gardens in San Francisco. As it turns out, the club, and in particular, San Francisco disc jockey Terry Hammer, had recorded tons of these great performances from all kinds of bands directly from the soundboard. Many of these performances have never been released commercially until now, and they sound amazing. In many ways, these records are revealing the importance and vibrancy of the San Francisco music scene in a way that has never been done before. What's really interesting is that this series of records is not only curating the live performances of some of the most influential bands of its time, it's also exposing a whole new generation of people to artists who at the time might not have had the opportunity to record or release their songs, despite being profoundly important and influential to the bands that did get that opportunity. Among those include the San Francisco punk band No Alternative. Formed in 1978, No Alternative was a punk band that shared the same like-minded aggression as the Dead Kennedys or Black Flag or Flipper or DOA or The Germs. Unfortunately, during their initial run, they committed very few of their songs to vinyl, releasing a three-song EP in 1980 entitled Backtracks. They also submitted two other songs to a pair of local compilations, and in 1999, they released a compilation album called Johnny Got His Gun, 1978 to 82, which featured rare live recordings, demos, and a handful of unreleased tracks. But that's it. But don't be misled. No Alternative was a tremendous band that was highly in demand at the time. And when you listen to the new record, Live from Abuhe Gardens, November 7th, 1980, you'll understand why. The album not only includes their performances from that night, it also includes two studio recordings that have never been released to the public, including the song Witch Doctor and Working Class Boy. Both great but the star of the record were the songs that they performed live. My guest today is the former lead singer, songwriter, and guitar player, Hugh Patterson, often known as Johnny Genocide from No Alternative on Baxi's Musical Podcast. I've been, uh, I've been listening to the new record, uh, Live from Abuhe Gardens, uh, November 7th, 1980. You know, I, okay. I, I absolutely love that Liberation Hall Records is releasing these these live performances from from that club. I mean, yeah, that, it, it's such a it's such a cool way of of kind of curating what that San Francisco scene was like back then, especially for bands that you know some people may not be all that familiar with. Tell me about uh, about that time and, and about that club if you can. Well, you know, the whole time period, uh, I don't know how to describe it other than uh, we basically compressed what would have normally been five to seven years of a music scene into about two years. You know, basically, you had a bunch of disenfranchised uh, kids 
who wanted to make music but did not have the technical skills to play like all the stadium bands like Led Zeppelin. Uh, you know, all, I mean, I, I always wanted to be a guitar player, but I realized I was never going to play that well. And there was this Filipino supper club that was not doing well. Uh, a promoter, Dirk Dirksen, who was willing to book anything and a club owner who was willing to try anything. And Dirk just started booking these strange acts and, you know, punk kind of hit in England and in New York. And before you knew it, it just became kind of a, a haven for anybody that had a punk band. I talked to uh, Deborah Ayal from uh, Romeo yeah. Boy a few months ago. And, you know, I asked her about the the same thing and, and her impressions were kind of you know, very much like what you're talking about is that this club is everything that CBGB's was not in New York. It was a very, yeah. diff- a very different feel. But like a lot of cities, you know, San Francisco, you know, Los Angeles, these cities had these really vibrant scenes. And a lot of great bands came in and out of that place. I mean, you know, the Dead Kennedys, I and mean, you could go on for forever. A band like like yours, a band like uh, like No Alternative, you had the songs, and you and you and you had. I mean, you you built a, a great following, but you didn't commit a whole hell of a lot of that music to vinyl. Was there like a specific reason for that? I know you had the the EP out, but but and a couple of singles on compilations, but. But there wasn't a whole lot of stuff out there for people to discover what the band was all about. You know, it was we. I was more into just live performances. I mean, if I had it my way, I would never record a thing. The only time you'd get to hear anything coming out of me would be showing up at a club. <laughs> There's a movie called Diva that I got the idea from. It's about a French opera singer who does not record but she has a perfect voice so people have to go out and see her play and i you know it was just my it i mean back then first of all we didn't have the technology we have today i mean i own my own studio in my house that outdoes any studio that we recorded in and back then you know it's a lot of it was a matter of money you know, just drumming up the money, and there were very few studios willing to, you know, spend the time uh, recording punk bands. Right, but when I hear the uh, the live record, you know, what I hear is a band that could very easily have, even though it may not have been, you know, your priority or what you were thinking of, this is a band that was certainly good enough to release quite a bit of music. I don't know if, if uh, you know, what would have determined success or failure but it certainly wouldn't have been the music that would have been at fault for that one. Yeah, that's what I hear. I'm a terror. I'm a self critic, so I, you know, <laughs> I I shudder when I think about, uh, cr- you know, critiquing my own music. <laughs> <laughs> so when you when you hear these live performances, and again, it's, it's been you know 43 years when you found yeah. out that these performances had been recorded at the time, right? You know, directly from from the sound equipment. What were your recollections of that? I mean, did did it did those performances live up to your expectations? Was it what you expected to hear when you found that these that these tapes even existed? You know, it, it at first I at first I absolutely to be honest with you, I absolutely hated them because it's um, <laughs> you know I, not, I mean Greg and Jeff are great musicians. Those guys came in; they were trained musicians. Um, I mean, I I studied classical piano. I was not a guitar player. Um, 
And I basically learned how to play guitar while playing in bands live at clubs. So I listen. I would listen to it and I'd go, oh, God, I'm just, this is, no, that note's off. No, the timing's really poor here. <laughs> and I would just sit and rip the thing to shreds. But then um, there's this, there's a bar up in Alaska that has one of our other CDs with a bunch of live stuff on it. And it's on constant rotation in their jukebox. And I asked one of the guys who told me about it, I said, why do people even listen to that? And he said, because it captures a time and place. And that clicked for me. And I started looking at it as capturing a time and place. It doesn't have to be perfect, but does it capture that moment? And it does. I think it totally does. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons why I, I like this series so much because you know it it does give you a sense. I mean, any any live band that's playing is going to occasionally make you know mistakes. They may miss miss a note here, you know, be off, uh, you know, be off rhythm or whatever it is. But I think that's right. I think it does it does really showcase what was going on. And if you really listen, maybe less critically than you, I think you're thinking, at least for me, these are really great songs, and these guys are playing the hell out of them. And they, I mean, I, they may not have lived up to someone who's, you know, self-critical, like, like, like you're saying, but I think for someone who's listening to it for the very first time, yeah, I, I would give myself a hundred percent on the heart that I put into it. Without, and that's, without I guess at the end of the day, what matters. So there's two unreleased tracks on this record. There's witch doctor and working class, uh, working class boy. Where, yeah. where did those songs uh, come from? Where, where, where were they hiding? Uh, that, well, those two, okay, so we tried, uh, I had this great idea that we were going to record at Hyde Street Studios in San Francisco because they had Jimi Hendrix's equipment from the Electric Ladyland studio. So I had this great idea, hey, if we use that equipment, maybe some Hendrix magic will bounce off the equipment and will produce <laughs> something brilliant. And it was a case of going into a rock and roll studio with a bunch of engineers that had no time or interest. So they recorded, I think they recorded the demos. And um, it was either that studio or Tom Mallon's, but I think it was Hyde Street. And, you know, they just kind of, you know, when they were done, we were like, yeah, that's okay. And they just sat in a box. You know, we did a lot of stuff that just kind of, I mean, you know, stuff that sat in a box. Yeah. I've heard that kind of story before. I don't know if you ever saw the, uh, the documentary of the band called death. This is a, yeah. a this, I mean, this is a band that had all their music in a box for 37 years before someone realized, Hey, I think that stuff is in the attic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it wanted to be fantastic, but, but uh, it's funny what you may lose over the course of time. Yeah, that's just it, you know, and it's just, it, it just kind of sad. I had no idea where any of this stuff was because as soon as I finished recording something, I kind of have, I'm like off to the next project. The, uh, the compilation that you mentioned earlier that, uh, that I believe that's the, uh, the Johnny got his gun yeah. uh, compilation, which, you know, has music from 78 to 82. It's all, you know, demos and live tracks and some things that, uh, yeah. were recorded. What happened to the band after 1982? Well, um, you know, with us, we just kind of, uh, Greg and I went off and started playing rockabilly. As I got into country and rockabilly, so we started this band, The Swinging Possums. Um, and I had, uh, you know, and then, you know, for the world's shortest period of time, I was Chris Isaac's first guitar player. 
Yeah, except we hated each other, so that didn't, you know, that lasted all of five minutes. But, I mean, I'm that, I'm glad it didn't work because the guy who became the guitar player, Jimmy Wilsey, who was the bass player from the Avengers, created that whole wonderful textured sound that Chris Isaac has. Right, right. You know, so it's like, you know, things happen for a reason. But yeah, after that, and I played with a band called People's Temple, which was kind of psychedelic rock, and another band called The Watchmen, which was psychedelic surf, if you will. And then just kind of, you know, I just, I had a bad accident uh, in 86. Uh, I was in a building that literally blew up, and my, three of my fingers got blown down, literally blown to the bone and had to be reconstructed. So I had to learn how to play guitar all wow. over again. How how long did that take? Uh, it, it took about 10 years. Wow. And, and are you, do you have all the manual dexterity, you know, today? I mean, that's, you know, 86 is a long yeah, time. I actually play better because now I, I go between, cause no, so no alternative. We, we, pra- we still practice once a week and we gig, um, we're going to be putting out a new CD of all new material. And, you know, so I do that, but I'm also, I, I play old school bebop jazz guitar with a couple of bands up where I live. And my playing's actually better than it was back then, but it was a long, hard road. You know, you, you talk about playing different styles. You know, rockabilly is one of the things that uh, you, you mentioned. And, and uh, you know, Witch Doctor from the, the, the live album, you can really hear the transformation where it almost sounds like it, it, it almost has a real feel like of, of uh, the cramps. Yeah, that was a cr- that was actually, uh, you know, that that song marked the crossover where we, you know, where I was starting to go in that direction because we had done a bunch of gigs with the cramps and I, I tend to be influenced by those around me. Like we did a lot of gigs. We played a lot with X from Los Angeles. Right. And, um, you know, Billy influenced my guitar playing heavily. I mean, he would just come up to me and go, you know, you don't have to just play that stuff. You can listen, add this in. It sounds much better. You know, and started to introduce me to country and rockabilly and, you know, a lot of blues and stuff. You know, the cramps kind of, and, I, and um, their first guitarist, Brian Gregor, Gregory, and I were friends. So, um, yeah, they were kind of influential. And I, I mean, those guys just had such a great sound. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think any time that, the, you know, Billy Zoom takes, you know, a little bit of time away to tell you how to, how to play guitar just a little bit better. I would listen to that advice all freaking day from that guy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm one for, you know, when people give me advice, you know, guitar players give me advice. I, I, I sit there and take notes. Absolutely. You know, talking about the guys that you're talking about, you know, from the cramps and, and X, you know, great, great guitarist to model yourself after. Yeah. Yeah. You also played with the offs for a little while too. And, and that's, I mean, that's interesting because, you know, now you're going from rockability to, to, to ska. So tell me about that. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, the offs, I actually played with the offs before I played with no alternative. So, I mean, I started out as the singer at KGB, became a rhythm guitar player for the offs, which was really good. That, that was probably the best, tra- you know, on the job training I had because it required, you know, relatively precise rhythm, uh, rhythmic playing, you know, which really helped. And, you know, it was just, I, I just, you know, I kind of, I liked the music. You know, I liked ska a lot, and, I, and it was fun to be doing something a little different. 
So now you're like you said you're you're still playing with uh, with Greg Langston and you have been for yeah. for a while. This new record that you're talking about, when do you expect uh, something that could be released? Um, well, we're finishing the uh, fi- the final rehearsals on all the stuff uh, so we can take it into the studio. Um, I'm gonna actually record it here in Marin, you know, in my house and. You know, just to see how it sounds, and then um, you know, either we'll release it ourselves if it if it meets the snuff test, or we'll see uh, shop it, try to shop it around to a smaller label. One one of the things they also wanted to ask you about, you know, apart from music, I know that one of your other big passions, and I find this to be mm-hmm. really interesting, is your passion about chess. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean. You, <laughs> I mean, I just think it's it's really interesting. A lot of people wouldn't expect a guy in a punk band to be playing chess, but you not only play it, you teach it, you've written about it. It's it's yeah. a it's a it's a big big overwhelming passion. Tell me about how you got involved in the game. You know, I just somebody showed it to me when I was twelve, and I just kind of picked it up, enjoyed playing it, and um, you know, I was I mean, I kept it hidden from everybody on the punk scene. Uh, I mean, I literally, you know, people would come over at night and I'd like, okay, let me bury the chessboard somewhere, all these chess books. I mean, at that point, I had a library of a couple of hundred books, so I'd like throw a blanket over the bookcase and just kind of, you know. And I just, yeah, I just, I just always enjoyed it and had an opportunity. And I got good enough at it where I was, play, I was doing tournaments, but I ended up becoming a trainer and a coach. So I would coach people in uh, playing, and I specifically the opening phase of the game, and you know ended up writing a weekly chess column for a uh, well-known English grandmaster. And I mean, I just wrote my 453rd article. Wow, that's amazing! And then um, this uh, company that does art books hired me to write a chess book for them. So I put out a, you know, I did a chess book that did really well and it's nice because it pays. I mean, they pay you to write and then you get royalties as well, which is, you know, really pleasant. It's, it's funny to hear you talk about, you're trying to hide that from, from other, from your musician friends. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine, you know, Jello Biafra or, you know, Joey shithead, you know, sitting down to play around, but it, it reminds me of like, you know, Alice Cooper golfing, like, he, you know, for years. Yeah, exactly. He, he didn't want yeah. Anybody to know. Except, yeah, you know, it, I mean, now I don't care. I mean, I'm a total <laughs> nerd, you know, I just, uh, I mean, I went back to school, uh, before the pandemic and got a degree in electrical engineering with a bent towards, uh, internet of things stuff. And then, you know, I mean, I love nerdly stuff. What's really interesting to me is, you know, chess is such a complicated game and to be to play at a competitive level. I mean, it takes a certain kind of vision and strategy and and uh, and intellect and certainly a competitive drive uh, and to be comfortable enough to do what you do to write about it. I mean, there's no way you can fake something like that. You you literally no. you literally have to be immersed in the game and know it awful damn well to write 400 columns in a full book about it. Well, you know, it's just, it, it. it's like anything else. It's it's like guitar playing. I mean, anybody can become a decent guitar player. Anybody can become a decent chess player. It's a lot of theory and practice. You study, and then you practice what you've studied in the real world. 
it's just that what separates the you know the you know the truly great people from the rest of the pack is it's what you do with that skill set you know and with the chess i mean it's just after a while you get so knowledgeable about the game that it becomes i mean to sit down and write an article um you know i do a weekly column and it literally takes me 2 hours from start to finish and that's like 1500 to 2000 words but it's not and it's not i'm not a genius it's just that i have this stuff it's it's muscle memory it's so so ingrained in my thought process that it's and it's you know it's very easy at this point to articulate things right but you know i think for most people though i mean their their basic understanding of the game either comes from like a rudimentary level of playing or what they've seen in Hollywood, whether it be like, you know, chasing Bobby Fisher or the Queen's Gambit or whatever it is. Yeah. I, I mean, how far do you, how far away from reality is, you know, are those representations of the game? Pretty far. I mean, most of us are, you know, you know, most of us have a side that you could say we were dullards and idiots in a lot of regards. It's just, it's, it, people who are good at chess are good at pattern recognition. That's it in a nutshell. And, you know, I mean, Hollywood kind of, you know, there's this idea that chess players are mad geniuses. Like you have to be a genius to play chess. I mean, some of the dumbest people, not dumb, but just not exactly in tune with everything are some of the greatest chess players I know. They just have this skill of pattern recognition. So when you read a, a story about like that whole Magnus Carlson cheating scandal, um, yeah. What I mean, what's your what's your take on on that? Because it sounds like a pretty elaborate scheme, if it's true. You know. Okay. So the one of the problems with the 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 guy that's accused of cheating is that he had been caught cheating in his in his when he was younger. You know. So there's a mark. You know. So there's there's definitely a mark against him. You know, technology makes cheating very easy. <laughs> yeah, but to go I about mean, it, to go about it the way he, they were doing it seems to be like yeah, a little a I, little intrusive. Yeah, I mean, it's just it. I, you know, I'm kind of on the fence about it because, on the one hand, I mean, it's something you know, it's something that's worthy of a James Bond movie. You know, in some regards or some, you know, action, you know, it's just kind of over the top. But then on the other side, I mean, you know, if you just kind of strip it down, you know, I can't say that it couldn't have happened that way. But, I mean, to to, to have done it, does it make him, I mean, how does the, obviously there's more than one person involved here, but, but, then, you're, yeah. but then you're relying on, the vision and pattern recognition of somebody else. Why isn't that guy playing rather than Magnus Carlson? Well, at the end of the day, the behind all that is a, a computer program with a very advanced algorithm. So, so people, you generally, the way people cheat is they gain some sort of access to a computer program that can analyze the moves. Okay. And well, first of all, when you're playing at a top level, so if you're playing Magnus Carlsen, all the bad moves that a beginner would make are off the table. 
the only moves that you're going to see out of Magnus Carlsen are the best possible retorts to whatever move you make. So there, it's going to be, you know, for every move that you make, there's probably, you know, instead of being six million possible responses to that move, you know, there's going to be probably 10. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's a computer, there's somebody on the other end of, I mean, if, if I was planning to create somebody that could cheat, you know, cheat the system, it would be a combination of a computer program and a human player who was of grandmaster level. Okay. I mean, I think that, at the, you know, when the, when all when the dust settles on all this, they're going to find yeah, there's another person involved in this, and that person was aided by a computer program. So let me. Ask- I mean, the whole thing about cheating in chess is it's just it. It you know it, I don't I I just don't get it because there's you know winning a game of chess is a great victory for your mind. It's like my mind beat my opponent's mind. Yeah, I mean, I I I think I I can understand that, but that would be true of of cheating in in. In anything, whether it's you know yeah. chess or baseball or you know, you know whatever it may be, I mean you're always you're not just cheating against the person you're playing against. You're kind of cheating, you know, your own sense of satisfaction about it. The only way yeah. you can win is to is to do it dishonestly. That's why I like playing guitar, especially jazz guitar. There's no cheating. You can't <laughs> cheat. You just have to be able to play the notes right. Now you you mentioned about you know trying to hide chess away from uh your your musician friends. Do you find that you have to hide music away from your chess friends? No, they you know it just kind of goes part and parcel. Um, and you know, being I mean, I'm like I'm 62 years old, so the days of hiding stuff are older. I'm just like, yeah, whatever. You you know, if you don't like it, take a hike. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I would imagine that you know there are probably some people in uh, in the chess world that probably wouldn't know what to do with Johnny Genocide. I would think that might confuse a few people. Well, the, you know, the uh, usually it's uh, it's like, why are you playing that kind of music? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, it's great you're a musician. And also in chess, there have been a lot of musicians who have been grandmasters. Oh, really? I mean, I, I didn't even, I didn't even realize mostly that. In, mostly in classical music. But, oh, okay. Um, yeah, chess and music have a lot of similarities as far as uh, the discipline required to do them well and, you know, the mastery of both. They're, they're very similar. Well, I, I mean, I just think it's really interesting, you know, how, you know, two big passions of yours, you know, seem to have, like, nothing to do with each other. But it's just, I, I just think it's cool that, that you've gone down that road in two different levels of, of your career. I think it's really cool. Well, one gives me relief from the other. If they were both, if they were close, uh, it, it wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't provide the same relief because I can disappear into the world of chess or I can disappear into music. I think, you know, when you're doing, I know for me, whenever I'm doing something that requires a lot of concentration or a lot of, you know, brain activity, I just want to at some point step away from it and do something that's just guttural and aggressive and where I'm not yeah. really using my brain in, in in the same way. It's not like I'm not using it, but I'm not using it in the same intense, you know, hyper-focused way. I'm, I'm doing something that's just a little bit more free and natural, which I would imagine yeah. music is, is, is that, especially jazz, is absolutely that way. Yeah, you know, it is. And, you know, I got into jazz because I was going to just quit playing guitar because I was getting really bored. Um, I, only because I'd been playing long enough and it, you know, 
had studied music theory. So, you know, I could learn how to play things that used to be a big mystery to me when I was younger. And, you know, I just felt like I wasn't making any progress. So I decided, oh, let me try some jazz guitar and then, you know, start studying guys from the 50s and 60s like Wes Montgomery. Yeah. And realized, wow, this is great. There's all these subgenres. The the rhythmic structures are different. The timings are really weird. Uh, and I like the fact that you know everybody gets a chance to solo in a jazz band: drummer, the bass player, the guitar player, the horn players. There's also something very cool about following the lane that somebody takes in 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 jazz improvisation. Yeah, you know, there's something kind of neat about the way. You know, I'll feed off of what you're playing, and then at some point you'll feed off of what I'm playing, and we have not planned any of this. That's kind of a cool, exactly. kind of a yeah. cool way. That is the great. That is the great. To me, that's the greatest gift of jazz. Is the you know every song has the potential to take you someplace you've never been before and never expected to be. And I think you most. Most jazz professionals kind of agree that that's the most satisfying part about it is this, this it's a kind of like this selfless act where you're all kind of doing something together and the idea is primarily listening to what is actually going on. Like you can't get too in your head. You got to be feeling the whole room, which I think is I mean, yeah. the fascinating way of looking at music because sometimes music can be just so you know, rigid and and structured that the best music sometimes is stuff that doesn't even go down that road. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. And that's the thing that, I mean, even with, I mean, even with punk rock, it was very structured. I mean, you know, it, 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 you, you listen to almost every band and it's a very structured format. Um, you know, it, and it's not to say that it doesn't have, you know, great edginess to it. But with something like Jen, you know, pretty much almost all forms of music, with you know, except for jazz. Jazz has it has structure, but it's it allows you to break through that structure and just go in another direction, and then you know, at some point, come back to the structure. Well, I think that some of the structure is kind of necessary because of the because yeah. you know, really punk at that point is kind of based on people who may not have a full grasp of the of the instrument that they're playing. And that, oh, yeah, that's the yeah. only way to get through it is to have a little bit of uh, structure. That's why songs are short. That's why things are fast. And, and uh, that's that was part of the fun of being in a punk, uh, being a punk fan. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because, like, the San Francisco bands, you know, the difference between L.A. and San Francisco, San Francisco, we were all learning to play our instruments literally as we were standing on stage, whereas, like, most of the bands in L.A., had the, the players were all experienced players. I mean, they, they came in. That's why the level of, I mean, and I'm saying this in a generalized way because there's exceptions to everything, but if you listen to the, the uh, skill set uh, from that time period between L.A. and San Francisco, you, you see a huge difference. But that's what made it great, though. You had two different, you know, basically two, you know, two different uh, ways of approaching the same subject matter. Yeah. So the uh, the name of the uh, the new live album, No Alternative, live from Abuhe Gardens, November seventh, nineteen eighty. I uh, can't wait to hear the the uh, the new music from uh, No Alternative. Hugh, this has been a lot of fun. It's been it's been great to talk to you about uh, about all this. A stuff. pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, and and, and I wish You're you all the luck. You're very welcome. 
Thank you, Hugh. Have a, have a great night. You too. The name of the new live album by No Alternative is called Live from Abuhay Gardens, November 7th, 1980 from Liberation Hall Records. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to like it, rate it, share it with everybody you know. Be sure to follow for regular updates on social media, and you can email me at bax at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. Thanks again to ZM Home Buyers for their support, and thanks to you for listening to Baxi's musical podcast.